Welcome to Crafting a Revolution, the podcast. My name is Katie Freeman, and I'm your host. Every week, I bring you interviews with makers, artists, designers from all over the world that identify as female, non-binary, or transgender. This week's guest is Tina Tang from Bristles AI. So Tina is a co-founder and the CEO of Bristles AI. Tina is a systems engineer with graduate training in machine learning and computer vision from the University of Virginia. Prior to graduate school, she was an associate manager at Accenture focused on software product design and delivery. She has a background in art and generally loves visualization from data viz to design to drawing and painting. As far as Bristol's, Bristol's is a startup based in Durham, North Carolina, Our mission is to build creativity-enabling products that harness the insight of artificial intelligence to deliver powerful functionality as delightful, easy-to-use tools for visualizing ideas, because sometimes words aren't enough. We're inspired by a classic creative tool, the paintbrush. It enables the artist to focus on illustrating their creative vision, all the while thousands of tiny bristles are working to apply paint evenly and smoothly In our products, we pack the power into the bristles so you can focus on the rewarding creative bits of your work. Our first product is a mobile app for designing home, DIY, and upcycling projects. These transformations are massive creative undertakings, so we're empowering DIYers and upcyclers to visualize, build on, and share their ideas. Now, I am going to admit that um, I have not yet tried out bristles. Uh, However, there are quite a few uh, people that we all know probably in common that have used it um, and are getting a lot of good out of it. I do plan on using it because I think it will be so beneficial in visualizing, especially color, um, as I continue down my own journey of graduate school and design. So excited to get a chance to talk with Tina, learn more about the app, and then just more about her in general. Being a woman in tech especially is not um, is a difficult place to be still uh, today. Before hopping into my conversation with Tina, I want to give a big shout out and thanks to the patrons over on Patreon. So thank you so much, Lee Runyon, Annette 513 Woodworks, Katie Thompson, Women of Woodworking, Christy, Twisted Twine Woodworking, Jeremy Spies, Sammy, Go Sammy Lee, Rachel, Moody Makes, Laura, Oakley Soap Company, Brandy, Studio Obey, Ellen, Little Bear Furniture, and Ethan, Ethan Carter Design. So thank you all so very much for your ongoing continued support of the podcast, Every Bit Matters. All right, so let's go ahead and jump on into my conversation with Tina. Well, I like to start by asking my guests to introduce themselves. So would you do that for me? Yeah, happy to. So my name is Tina Tang. I'm currently the co-founder and CEO of a startup called Bristles. And I started it with my partner, Anthony, also my business partner and significant other. Um, And we're really excited about what we're doing. Prior to that, I worked in IT um, and out. Actually, before, um, so I worked in IT and then went to grad school, and that led to bristles. Okay. Um, so let's take a step back before you got to even IT. Like, let's go to you know where were you born and where you grew up, and kind of what what was the journey to get to here? Yeah. So I was born in Bethesda, Maryland, uh, and actually when I was growing up, we didn't speak English at home. So uh, my my dad is a refugee from Vietnam. He came to the States during the Vietnam War on a boat, and my mom is from a farming village in, uh, in 
Southern China. And they met here in the States. They both spoke Cantonese. And so growing up, I spoke Cantonese. And when I started kindergarten in Maryland, you're four when you start kindergarten in Maryland. Um, I actually didn't know any English except my name and how to say hi. And so it was, it was extremely scary going to school because I was just, I was scared to speak. Um, and so my crutch was drawing pictures to communicate. And that was my first realization of drawing as, as a form of communication. And it was just what I used to get by for a while. And then over time, I started watching uh, a lot of TV shows that spoke English. And that's how I started picking up <laughs> English. Um, but throughout elementary school, I, I took, um, I was in this English first as a second language program, ESL. And all through elementary school, I took drawing classes and painting classes because I was just so committed to this alternative way to share what I wanted to say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, you're definitely not the first guest that I've had on that went started school here in the States without knowing any English. And I have to imagine like, that's gotta be a, an extremely like overwhelming experience. Um, it was. And yeah, probably, and just probably scary, like not knowing what people are saying to you. And then, um, yeah, having to figure out how to express your needs throughout that process too. Oh, it was so scary. Actually, my teachers would call my parents and initially they kept asking if I was mute because I was afraid to say anything in school. Um, and my parents would try to explain to them that I, I'm talking just fine. They would hold the phone up to me, like playing with my cousins at home. Um, but yeah, I was terrified at school. Did not say a word until maybe second grade. They actually sent me to a special ESL school. They transferred me to a different school in first grade because they thought I really needed a, a special English as a second language program. But over time, I got braver. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What do you think helped uh, gain confidence there? Well, one one thing that happened was, so my grandfather passed away when I was in first grade and his last words to me were actually, you need to have the courage to speak because you're not going to get anywhere in life if you don't say what you need to say, say what you want to say. So mm -hmm. um, I think that was the push I needed. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's pretty powerful right there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, you said you continued kind of with art. Did that continue all the way through like high school and stuff too? And mm -hmm. So I took studio art classes in high school and my art teacher at the time encouraged me to find an art program, but I was also um, kind of watched my parents struggle financially. And so I was also just concerned about getting a good job. And so I ended mm -hmm. up going into engineering when I, um, when I entered college, but engineering, it sounds kind of very cut and dry, but you get to input a lot of creativity into actually. And now I think from a very, um, art mixed with engineering mindset, because with mm -hmm. engineering, you always think about assumptions and constraints and problem solving based on your constraints and assumptions. But right. starting with constraints is actually a really great place um, that creativity kind of comes from. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, definitely. And I would say like, at least in, you know, my, I too was in engineering for a really long time. And now, you know, switching over to design and finding that there's a lot of similarities and probably the biggest one is just like both involve a great amount of problem solving mm -hmm. um you know based on like you said like those constraints for 
for the input. So I think I understand, like, I also, I had, a, I had outside, I guess, pushes from like, you know, parent influences and stuff of not going into the arts because, you know, growing up poor, it's like, you need to go find a job that like, you can take care of yourself and mm -hmm. don't have to worry and be like paycheck to paycheck anymore type thing and so mm -hmm. that's like where the engineering came in um and I feel like I mean you're first generation American so I know mm -hmm. also a lot of times like immigrant parents definitely push their kids to kind of go towards you know like medical field or lawyer or engineer mm -hmm. or like the things yes. that make it so you don't have to worry so much as far as money's mm -hmm. concerned yeah yeah they bear they emphasized excelling in uh in school and things like that mm -hmm. for sure yeah so what type of engineering did you go into I went into civil engineering so okay. um but then after I finished uh, school and entered the workforce, I only stayed in civil engineering for about a year and then switched into an IT consulting career for about six years before then returning to grad school again. Okay. Did you know anything in the IT world before switching over to that? Not really. <laughs> um, I had some friends that worked in IT consulting and um, it seemed like a fun job. You got mm -hmm. to travel. And actually in my consulting career, I didn't travel very much. I was always at home-based projects, which mm -hmm. in hindsight, I think was better because I think traveling's mm -hmm. fun at first, but then having to do that every single week, I think can be very tiring. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely. So I, mm -hmm. so I thought IT was, was fun for a few years but I really enjoy learning. And it got to a point where it felt a lot like rinse and repeat. And that's when I started becoming unhappy with my career. Mm -hmm. I wanted to learn and move to different places, but it's kind of constrained to where I had experience in the company. Um, so I decided to return to grad school full-time to learn. Mm -hmm. And what did you go to grad school for? For systems engineering. Uh, okay. focused on applied machine learning. But before I made that jump, it took maybe two years of feeling kind of unhappy with my career to really making that decision. It was it was really hard to make that call. Um, mm -hmm. Just choosing to not have that stability of my income anymore. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I think my curiosity just won out in that. Um, mm -hmm. I returned to school and decided during these two years where I'm pursuing my master's degree, I really want to figure out what I want to do in life. I have to figure it out in two years. So that's kind of what I said to myself. Mm -hmm. And that's, and so a, that's a crunch to put on yourself. <laughs> um, I, I really, at least for me, I, I feel pretty strongly like yes, I have a dream, whatever, I have a goal, you know, that I'm kind of chasing after. But I truly feel like even once I reach that, I'll probably want something different. Like, I think until the day I die, I will be trying to figure out what I want to do for the rest of my life. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think that's reality. So I said yeah. that to myself, but it wasn't realistic at all. It was just me trying to figure out the next step more so. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. Why uh why the focus on machine learning? Right. So I really wanted to get into where I thought technology was moving in and um machine learning I I at the time and I still think so is the future. It actually is it's already transforming industries and I wanted to be able to think about problem solving with with what machine learning can do in mind. Um, but as soon as I started taking computer vision courses, that's where I really 
just was fascinated with computer vision and what it could do. And I had a lot of free time that I didn't have when I worked in IT. And so outside of my courses, outside of my research, I would um, just play around with all these models and see what they could do. And um, the Smithsonian had released this data set of National Portrait Gallery historical portraits. And so like hundreds of images that were just really cool to look at. Um, and I was reading about colorization at the time. So there are all these artists that take these photos, this, these historical photos, they bring it into Photoshop and then manually like layer by layer, layer paint on color. And so it would be it's like 300 hours of work to, um, to start from scratch. Okay. And I was curious about training a model to assist me in, in that task. Um, cause I was very curious about it, but I didn't have the training of a colorization artist to, to do that. And so I trained a machine learning model to, um, kind of get the base colors on there and then I could do the rest. So mm -hmm. it helped me do a lot of the colorization. And then I would go in and change the color of the clothing and, um, correct any mistakes the model made. And I just thought that was so just the combination of being able to do those two things was really powerful. And I wanted to bring that to the everyday consumer because I, was, I thought about like what enabled me to do that. It was me understanding machine learning and Photoshop. And mm -hmm. those are actually two things that are, are hard to learn. Um, so I started thinking about what I could try to build to enable kind of the everyday person to use tech in a creative way like that. Um, mm -hmm. So during the end of grad school, that's what I was thinking about. And I really wanted to do something in that general space. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious to maybe just get your opinion, like, you know, it's been, I would say, a long time, 30 to 50 years, that people have continued as technology advances, as machinery advances, advances to be fearful that that technology and those machines will eventually replace the human involved in those tasks. So especially like just in maybe in the context of that like photo you know, project that you were kind of researching with like the mm -hmm. Smithsonian stuff. I'm just curious, like, you, what do you think about that interaction? And do you think that, you know, because I can hear it now, artists being like, oh my God, we're going to be like replaced by <laughs> AI and all that stuff. So just, I just want your, I guess, your opinion um, on that and what you think from what you've seen? Yeah, I think that's a very important question. And it's one that I spend a lot of time thinking about because the way a lot of machine learning has been implemented in creative spaces is, is in that way of kind of replacing the creative human. So you might see some photo editing applications where machine learning models are fit into this one tap filter. So in a photo and then you kind of choose a filter and there's something running that then um, puts an after effect on the image. And a lot of machine learning models are implemented like that in the creative space. And in that case, it is taking creative decisions away from the person because now the machine is doing everything and you're just putting in the input. Um, it doesn't leave a lot of creative flexibility. And that's where um, my partner and I, we think a lot about this because we want bristles to be very differentiated. We want to preserve human creativity at all costs as we develop our technology. So it's something that we always think about. Um, like if there is, like in the colorization project, for example, there are some decisions that probably shouldn't be left to the machine, like creative decisions about fashion choices. Um, there, the way machine learning works is it learns from a data set. So for historical images, um, there are no real versions of 
images and color from that period of time. Mm -hmm. So you can't train models fr from this data set of colorful images from that actual period. Right. So there's there are all these people that do research about what colors people wore, like what the period was actually like. And so for an accurate um, interpretation, an accurate image interpretation, you still need that person that did all that research to, um, to help out at the end. So the way I think it should be is machine learning takes care of the, the manual labor that you don't want to do. And then all the rewarding creative bits, mm -hmm. you should still get to do all of those things with precise control. And I think okay. the creative artist will not be replaced by machines. It's, they can produce creative content, but there's always going to be this creative person behind it, making these decisions to create the art. Okay. And can you share with us more like what is bristles and what's kind of like the intended use intended audience? Yeah, I'd love to. Um, so I guess I'll, I'll start with the story of how, uh, how we got to building bristles. So I mentioned the colorization example and uh, machine learning mixed with uh, kind of precise edits that happen afterwards via Photoshop. So we wanted to bring that technology uh, onto the phone. So you are you familiar with Photoshop? Mm -hmm. Yes. So, um, and I know a lot of people in the furniture refinishing and furniture making space, they use Photoshop for mock-ups a lot. So I think a lot of listeners will be familiar. So with Photoshop, you have your desktop screen where you have like a mouse with this point level control. So you mm -hmm. can make very precise edits because you have a mouse, you have your desktop screen. Um, and on mobile devices, you often don't have that level of control because your precision is limited by kind of the width of your fingertip. It doesn't get more precise than mm -hmm. that. So the first thing we did was we wanted to move uh, precision onto a mobile device. And so the way our app works is you can paint on furniture, but you have this precise control because we have a virtual stylus that kind of extends the editing point past where you're touching the screen. So it's like you have a mouse on your phone screen. Um, okay. So that's how we enabled like precise uh, painting. And then we also have painter's tape on there for you to paint. So you can think of you can think of bristles as a, a mock-up tool for DIYers on your phone. So you can access design from anywhere. Uh, so if you wanted to like paint an accent wall with fun shapes, you can use our painter's mm -hmm. tape, apply the paint, even add shelves and plants on top. It's kind of like this creative mock-up tool. And then for furniture, you can add the paint on your furniture, um, design, and mix like paint colors with stains, add new hardware, erase your old hardware. So there's, uh, you can get very creative. Yeah. I wanna also <clears throat> ask your opinion. I feel like it's beneficial <clears throat> that like you're the entity behind it and that like you are, um, and, and please correct me if you don't feel like you fit in this identity, but being a woman of color is not necessarily somebody um, who is typically in this field and maybe typically creating these um, computer learning situations, you know, and I've talked in other episodes about like that's how we have issues of like you know google identifying a black person as like a gorilla on google yeah. because because the people behind the ai learning um are imparting their biases on mm -hmm. um into that learning module so mm -hmm. i think it's important okay. that like 
you're not coming in with those same biases. And so I guess what is what is your feeling on like how you individually and then how others who maybe aren't, I'm going to just say like white men fit in and can help like diversify the computer learning world? Yeah, I, I think one big differentiator because I've I've pitched our idea to a lot of folks and some people really get it and a, and a lot do not. Um, and I think the more male-centric view is automate everything, automate everything, automate everything. And then you, but if you automate everything, you lose that creativity aspect. Um, okay. so that's one big thing. And I completely agree that classification models like the one you're describing are very dangerous and and the makers of those tools have to be very careful. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I think I think the creativity aspect is the one I run into almost daily. <laughs> um, it, I think it's it's difficult to appreciate creativity if you don't think about it all the time and appreciate it. You know, I think, mm -hmm. I think because I see it too, like, um, you know, in the art world, in the design world, I truly believe the farther a person's identity is away from a cis hetero white male, the more creative they are. And I think that's because they don't have the luxury of, um, you know, privilege that the other has and which, which means you have to get creative in life. Like there's just a lot of things that can come, the world makes come easy to you know certain people and not so easy to other people and yeah. and even as awful as that is I think the reward is that can be much more creative um and then if you take that and apply it to like art and design and that stuff that's you know can create things that the world has never seen because it's mm -hmm. it's coming from a place that um uh, typically or historically has not been um, recognized or seen. So I can imagine yeah. that, especially if you're raising funds and knowing and in the tech industry, if that's where you've been having to raise funds from for um, mm -hmm. bristles, that is very strong white men uh, culture. And I can imagine that they don't understand <laughs> that, what that's necessarily like or why that would be beneficial. Mm -hmm. And another part of this is, um, so I think a lot of DIYers think from a very budget conscious and also mm -hmm. sustainably focused perspective. And so when we think about our tools, we always focus on how do we enhance how do we help you make the most of what you have? Don't you don't have to buy everything new, right? Then, right. Um, and that's part of the fun because you have those constraints, and now you have to get creative. Mm -hmm. um, I think that makes it tough sometimes fundraising because the natural go to is, oh, we'll sell a bunch of things on the app, you know, sell a bunch of products, but we want to help you transform, and so we're we're very being very particular about that and I, I will keep, um, I'll keep at it because I think it's important. I think that's where the world is going. Everyone is trying to be, trying to live more sustainably. And if we focus on trying to make the most of what we have, I think that's part of it. That's part of the yeah. journey. Yeah, absolutely. Can you share with us a peek into the world of fundraising for an adventure a venture such as this um because I know 
I don't think a lot of my audience has been there, but I think that eventually, you know, a lot of them could be in that position of needing to raise funds for whether it's something they, you know, create a product they created or, or whatever, just, or starting their business. I think it's, um, not something we get to talk a lot about on the show. So I'm kind of excited yeah. to ask you, like, what is that like? What has that been like um, mm -hmm. for you? It's, it is a roller coaster. Um, I'm, I'd say I'm still at the very beginning of our fundraising journey. So far, we've gotten mostly grants from kind of nonprofit organizations and, um, we've gotten a small bit of funding from, uh, from a VC, but I get a lot of pushback that, um, that it sounds like this is a, a small thing, like this won't get big, uh, because mm -hmm. it's focused on, on DIY, but I think DIY is much bigger than mm -hmm. a lot of people realize, it's, it just seeps into the everyday. Like I think all homeowners probably have a DIY project that they've kind of set aside because they couldn't get that to that point where they knew exactly what they wanted to do. A lot of it mm -hmm. has to do with communication too. So something Bristles helps with is um, like having this visual conversation with a person, whether it be your woodworking client, your furniture refinishing client, or the partner you're building with, the partner you're building with in your home. Um, it's it's really tough to kind of shoot what you're thinking in your head over to someone else's brain. Yeah. <laughs> so um, our app kind of helps you draw it up and then have a visual that you can then both look at and, and iterate from. Um, yeah. I think part of it is I also have to improve how I describe what we're doing so that it resonates with the folks I'm talking to. Um, mm -hmm. So it, part of that is just a learning journey, I think. Um, mm -hmm. One thing I'll say is if you have a business idea and you're getting a lot of negative feedback as you're trying to fundraise for it, keep putting your idea out there to more people because one thing that I did in the beginning is I would try to update my pitch after feedback from every single person not realizing mm -hmm. that that person is just someone that's never going to invest right. um so I think it's more of a matching game than it is a try to convince everyone game because you can't have you until now have you ever had to do something even like even kind of similar to this pitching process? Uh, well, I guess when I worked in IT consulting, uh, so I was the product owner of a large scale software project. And a big part of my job was getting client approval on mm -hmm. decisions. And so I, I would say that's the most similar piece of it. Mm -hmm. It's like you have to present um, concept and get everyone to agree so it's it's pretty similar it's it's similar but also very very different <laughs> and this is a lot more challenging say yeah I am going to not go probably out on a limb and say that when you are talking to people the majority of them do not look like you is that a correct, correct. statement <laughs> Um, yes. and mm -hmm. I imagine it was probably even that way in the IT world and engineering world. Um, yeah. so For sure. it's kind of funny that you went from somebody that they thought might be mute to like, <laughs> you have to really, I mean, you're standing up for yourself, your idea in front of a whole room mm -hmm. of people that, you know, have no, no necessarily driven reason <laughs> to like buy into yeah. what, what you're trying to sell. So, um, 
Yeah. I guess I hope that you take the time and just like sit back and realize <laughs> like oh, for yourself, you. like how far you've come. Yeah. I appreciate yeah. that. It it has been a journey. I think when I started in engineering until now, I've just never been given the benefit of the doubt from whatever world I was trying to break into engineering and then IT and then even engineering grad school is very different from engineering undergrad um Mm -hmm. and then now in the startup world it's I just have to prove myself again and again and again but each time I think I get even more fueled by when I see the naysayers because then I'm just motivated to prove them wrong um (laughs) I remember like in, in my grad school program, there was this one course where um, the teacher, the professor was asking about like figures in this paper and for students to comment on it. And I raised my hand and I had something to say before I had a chance to speak. He said, oh, did you like all the pretty colors in the figure? And I had to pause for five seconds before I said my answer because that was just just crazy to hear because he would never say that to a guy, right? Right. So I was just like, that's unbelievable. But I think I proved myself in his course um, Mm -hmm. anyway, because I'm just always uh, out to prove myself. Well, I mean, the the unfortunate fact is that you have to. Um, Like you said, you're not given the benefit of the doubt when you walk Mm -hmm. into a space. So unfortunately, you have to continue to prove yourself over and over and over again. Um, What's the... I guess, what's the dream for bristles? What's the... Do you see foresee other areas that you want to, you know, get into other creative spaces with this similar, um, you know, type of program and, and stuff like that? My my goal for Bristles is to kind of highlight the value of visualization in an artistic or creative process, like within the home category. Mm-hmm. I think the planning process is underappreciated. Um, and I think if if people have the tools to really like put all of their ideas down and look at everything, that they would end up doing more creative things because it doesn't feel so risky when you see it. Uh, and you're like, oh, I think I would like that. And then you take the risk. I think in our homes, yeah because it's a place that's for us and it's a place that's kind of has to still look good for others. We tend to play it safe, tend to go for neutrals. We tend to not do crazy wild things. And my hope is uh, when Bristles is out there more, we'll see more of these really colorful creative projects all over. Um, And we're already seeing that in little bits. Uh, Whenever, whenever, one of our customers shares that they use bristles to design this creative space in their home. It's the most rewarding feeling in the world. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I really do think like the, the, the potential is endless, especially when you kind of said, I liked how you said, like, it's hard to project what's in your head over into somebody else's head. And I definitely think that way, like, I know that's what my fellow grad students and I talk about a lot is like, I can have an idea and I can use very little words and get my message across to other people who are like in the same field, right? Like Mm -hmm. another designer gets it. Like, I don't have Mm -hmm. to explain it a lot, but I come home and I'm excited about this design and I'm trying to tell my wife and she's just like, I don't like, I don't get it. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, cause it's just a different, I'm speaking an entirely different language. So if it was 
easier to take what's in my head and like quick sketch it out you know to start like a conversation with maybe a potential client or something like that I think mm -hmm. that just makes things so much better mm -hmm. and like you said I mean it it can only help the creative process to be able to have those conversations earlier rather than later mm -hmm. because yeah. if I get a no earlier in the process from somebody I'm spending less time on something mm -hmm. that was going to be a no anyways and to me that's exactly. valuable because my time is valuable um, yeah you exactly. know so I think all of that is can only be beneficial mm-hmm yep how do you, outside of all of the AI or all the, you know, computer learning type stuff, machine learning stuff, how do you still do your creative work? Because I can't imagine you went off to engineering school and you just stopped being creative. Like, I don't think that's what happened. So um, how do you kind of express your creativity? Yeah. Love that question. Um, you're right. I always had my creative outlets. So when I when I worked in IT or when I entered the workforce, one thing I had to figure out was how do you dress like a business professional? And um, so I'm five foot nothing, like really, I'm a, kind of a really small person. <laughs> and um, they don't make business clothes for my size turns out. Um, so I would shop at thrift stores, kind of get the, get some suit pants and uh, blazers. And I learned how to sew so I could upcycle. That was my first, uh, my first uh, dive, I guess, into upcycling. Um, so I would take clothes from thrift stores and just, uh, they become raw materials then because I would kind of take them apart. Now they're just fabric that I put back together um, to fit myself. And so that was my creative outlet for many years. And I still enjoy doing some of that today. I also- How did you even get, I mean, besides like, did you just throw yourself into that and teaching yourself mm -hmm. or, okay. Mm -hmm. I did, yeah. I, um, yeah, I just love tinkering with things. So it was, it was like that. I treated every bit of fabric after I kind of cut off the seams and things like that as just a raw ingredient that I could turn into something. Um, so that's kind of, kind of how I look at projects in general. It's how I look at DIY too. Okay. Do you and your partner do DIY um, kind of projects around your own, your own place? Yeah. So when we bought our home, we have this patio that's kind of smaller than your average patio. It's 10 by 10 feet. So it's pretty small. And so a standard table didn't really fit in that space. So we decided we would get creative. We bought a bunch of two by fours, miter saw, and uh, all these tools and built a little miniature picnic table. And it's still... Um, we still love it. It's probably our favorite, favorite part in the house. And I think for that one, we didn't need a visualization tool because it's kind of like putting raw new ingredients together. Um, mm -hmm. But then our next project, we wanted to update our, we had two projects we wanted to do. Um, one was our entryway. We wanted to, or I wanted to do something that was more creative, which was paint like the ceiling and down the front wall in mm -hmm. this based on this image I saw on Pinterest, I think, but Anthony just could not see, he could not picture what I was describing. So we kept going back and forth, couldn't make decisions and we never started that project. Um, and there was another project we wanted to do built-in shelves. And the same thing happened where this time Anthony thought like, uh, my Anthony's my partner, by the way, but he thought, dark paint would look better. And I was thinking, well, our, the walls in our house are white. So probably white paint would look better. And we just didn't have a tool to really help us. 
So when we started building bristles, that was our, those were our first test cases was visualizing those projects. Awesome. Did they, did it help give you a go to get those projects done? Mm -hmm. Yep. So now we know what we want to do and we just have to make time to, uh, to actually do those projects outside of building our app. <laughs> um, so what is, I guess, um, take a little bit of time here to explain. So you said, so both you and Anthony are co-partners, co-founders mm -hmm. of this, right? So what has been uh -huh. like kind of his role in all of this? He does the majority of the actual product development. So he okay. is, um, I'm CEO, he's CTO. And so I do more of the day-to-day -day business, business development, product vision, um, and I'm dabbling into marketing, still learning. <laughs> um, and he does most of the dev. Okay. And have you had any training previously in like, how do you do a business? How do you start a business? What do you do when you start a business? Uh, well, so I worked in industry. So I have business experience from uh, about building software as a product mm -hmm. owner. I was kind of responsible for the, for a lot of the delivery lifecycle of software. So everything from preparing requirements with the client to actually then designing, building, testing, implementing, and actually um, delivering that software um, to the actual users. And so from that perspective, I understand how to go from start to finish for delivering mm -hmm. software. From the starting a business standpoint, I didn't, I really didn't know a lot when I got started. Um, but I, I like learning. So I'm um, just figuring it out one step at a time. Yeah, I will definitely say, and I still have plenty, plenty to learn, but I know like just in the early days of like starting my business and figuring out things like social media and how to try to use that to, you know, amplify my business and stuff like that. Like I actually was surprised, I surprised myself in that I enjoyed learning those things as well because yeah. I kind of always assumed like that would be the stuff that yeah I didn't necessarily I mean, you're amazing enjoy. now mm -hmm. yeah your social is, your social is amazing you're oh, um, you. I was checking out your Instagram page <laughs> yeah so um you know it, it like I said there's still plenty to learn in in all different facets and I had a conversation the other day too of like Probably the best thing you can figure out is the things you don't want to like end up learning how to do all on your own and when you need to like hire something out. And um, and that's hard usually when you're getting started because you don't have the cash flow to hire those things out. But it's good to mm -hmm. at least have an understanding of like, this isn't my strong suit. This isn't something I wanna do. Um, even if yeah. you have to do it in the beginning just to get by, like eventually, you know, that that will pass off to somebody yes. else. Yeah, that's definitely challenging. Knowing where to get help first. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, I think my, my number one is going to be uh, taxes because I definitely am not a big fan <laughs> of having to know all of that stuff. Um, yeah, I am there with probably, you for that. Yeah. And then probably, you know, marketing and actually social media manager, just because at this stage, it's like, I really would like to pivot to being able to focus more on just doing the work, like designing and, and building and stuff. So, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, it's, I didn't expect how time consuming just content creation is for a social media page. It is, it's very time intensive. Yes, yes, it is. Um, and I think a lot of people say that after they like get into it, right? Like, I think, I know plenty of people when they hear the word, like somebody's an influencer or something, the immediate reaction is like, oh my God, that's like, how can that be a job? That's like so easy, 
you know, to yeah. do that. And, um, and the reality is, is no, it's not like, there's a lot of work to even just make those connections to get those deals with yeah. brands. And then there's a lot of work into creating content and, um, yeah, it's just, there's a lot of work behind the scenes that people don't understand. And that's why it's like, that's why it's worth paying somebody to be a social media manager for you. Um, mm -hmm. if you need to be more focused on like actual product development, um, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, for sure. And there's, there's also the fact that the social media platforms are constantly changing. So you think you understand oh, how <laughs> it works and then next week it's different. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, yeah, since grad school, I mean, I still have all of my social media, but I've basically just been like giving myself the grace to just focus on Instagram because I can't keep up with all the changes everywhere else. But I've recently mm -hmm. thought about that. I'm like, okay, after these three years and I'm like back on everything more regularly, it's ba I know I'm basically going to be learning everything all over again because things will have changed so drastically in, in three years time span. Yeah. Yeah. And kudos for mastering Instagram because that one is a challenging one too. I find it's constantly updating. Um, I will, I will definitely say I have not mastered it. Not at all. Okay. <laughs> from the outside I looking have, in. <laughs> I, I know from the outside looking in um, and people look at the follower numbers now, which basically happened off of just one video going viral. Um, and it doesn't nice. account for the previous you know, seven years spent trying to get to that one viral video. Um, but now, yeah, I have, I'm, I'm with several other people where it's like low engagement and back to trying to figure out like, what do I need to put out there? You know, is it, is it my content or is it the platform or is it whatever? And all those questions can be maddening when, especially when you don't have a ton of time to, like mm -hmm. throw at it and really figure it out again mm -hmm. so I understand uh, I will just say to even people listening do not let my numbers ever fool you <laughs> it's still <laughs> just as much of a grind as it was um before and honestly sometimes I miss being smaller because I felt like I had more connection with the people that were actually like mm -hmm. engaging with me you know, there's just, mm -hmm. it's harder now to meet new people and engage with new people. Um, just because it's, you never know. I don't know. I guess we'll put it that way. Oh, you have a new fan. Me. <laughs> Thank you. I'll, I'll take it. I'll, I will take any new fans I can get. Um, so besides growing the platform, is there, are you guys looking to partake in any, um, I don't even know if you're at this level of part, like participating in things like conferences or anything like that, where, you know, there a mass group of DIYers could be like your target audience and held captive for a few days for you guys. Um, do you foresee any of that coming up? <laughs> Well, we actually went to a conference last year. Have you heard of the Haven conference? Yep. Yeah. So we went to Haven. Kristen's great. Um, and that was really fun. And I think a lot of that's how we got our start in the DIY community and how anyone even knows who we are <laughs> today. Um, a lot of it has to do with connecting with people there. Some of our mm -hmm. top users are are from that conference. Um, yeah, they have yeah. a, I'll call it a brother conference, which is WorkbenchCon, and that's yeah. happening next week. Yeah. Oh, are you so, going? I am not, and I'm actually quite sad because I've been to every single one since they started. Um, but with grad school, I just, I can't make it happen. So I yeah. will be glued to my Instagram all weekend, watching all my friends have fun. Um, <laughs> just wishing I was there, but yeah, that would be, I would say, you know, a, another place if you're not already going that, you know, potentially next year, 
um, because mm -hmm. it's filled with kind of not necessarily people specific on DIY, but people who would still utilize the tool and like a lot of them are content creators too. So um, I definitely could see your influence grow if you could yeah. meet up and match up with that conference as well. Yeah, I need to keep Workbench. So I knew about Workbench, but it um, kind of went off my radar, but now I'm going to make a note. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um... And I'm glad that you made it to Haven because that's definitely where I, where I was thinking when I asked that question of like, that's definitely where you would have a big bunch of your target audience. Yeah, yeah, um, and yeah, it was it was really great attending just the energy and yeah. um, how creative everyone was, hearing all their stories. It's really fun. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. And, and right now. So you're working on like the app app, like an app to download from like Apple or, or Google Play Store. When yes. do you think that will be coming out? Yeah, we are. So we just submitted our app to Apple. So we're waiting for approval. So it should be just a couple of days for us to be in the Apple App Store. And then next we're going to um, launch in the Google Play Store. So uh not completely sure exactly how long that will take but soon awesome that's awesome and that's not to say like everybody can still use it now on their phone mm -hmm. it's just not through like a, a app it's a web-based exactly. system yeah the current version is a mobile web app so you can pull it up just like any other website on your phone but you can interact with it on the touch screen like any other app and there's a shortcut to add it to your home screen too. Um, but that's a little difficult to explain, but it's, it's you can do it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, awesome. So uh, yeah. hopefully um, I'll, I'll definitely keep an eye on it too to see when it shows up uh, in the app store awesome. so that hopefully by the time this airs, it's there and we can kind of, you know, link to that so people oh, can awesome. directly just uh, download That would it. be great. I will send you a note when we're on the app store. Okay. Awesome. Um, so we're at the end of our time. Um, I want to give you a chance though, to let people know, you know, currently right now, how can they um, find bristles and uh, get signed up with it? Yeah. So right now you can purchase a subscription to our mobile web app on our website at bristles.ai. Uh, you can follow us on Instagram at bristlesai without a dot. Um, okay. And that's kind of where we are right now. Yeah. Okay. See what we're all about. We're really excited about getting our app into the world. Okay. And I'm grateful that uh, I was able to share more about it here, Katie. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for uh, for coming on and um, answering all of my my questions. I really appreciate it. Um, I, really I don't get an opportunity it. like this very often, so I appreciate that. Oh my gosh, I don't get opportunities like this, so <laughs> I really appreciated it. And um, I, your questions were really thoughtful. I really enjoyed this. Well, thank you so much. All right. So again, that was Tina Tang of Bristles AI. I will include the link on how you can get to Bristles on the internet and great news. When we did the interview, there was not the, um, it was not in the Google Play Store as an app you could download. It now is, and you can get there straight from their website. So I will include that link in the show notes for today's episode. Best place to find that is the episode description in your podcast app. If you enjoyed this episode or are enjoying the podcast, I would like to request you to take 30 seconds of your time and please make sure that you follow along with the podcast on your app. So in Spotify, Apple, iTunes, wherever you may listen to us at, uh, please hit the follow button, which is generally in the upper right-hand side of the page. And while you're there, maybe take an extra 20 seconds to write a review. 
and hit that notifications button so you know when a new episode is out. If you want to take it a step further, which would be also greatly appreciated and want to maybe add another minute, so we're talking max two minutes so far, head on over to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash crafting revolution. There's several tiers available there for you to choose from, and you can help support the podcast in a monthly ongoing fashion. Um, and please share your favorite episode with a friend. All right, we, we, we will be back next week with another brand new episode. In the meantime, I hope that you are getting out there and exercising that creativity and helping to craft a revolution. See you next week. Pollution for the toxic masculinity. Pollution is the constant evolution of a